Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, I'm recapping the, my thoughts for the week. As I look at microservices and I look at the microservice architecture with Docker and think about how Docker can be deployed to different operating systems, it seems to me that the operating system is less of a factor and um, for application development. That you can move your application across Linux, Unix, Windows, um, and, and you can use this con Docker container to allow you to, uh, to run across those different operating system environments. Now, um, that includes the database side. So there's Docker support for SQL Server, and you can have set up your different services. So you can set up your microservices in a Docker container. The modern architecture allows for incremental improvement, scalable improvement, and uh, enterprise level extensibility. That capability is very important in an organization so that the IT department can begin to provide data services to all domains inside of a business organization. And that can be very extensive. And the logic can be very extensive. But you don't want to have logic that is highly coupled to other logic because that can cause dependencies and those dependencies can break things. So if you put in one microservice and it has a dependency on another thing, it can cause one microservice to begin to fail as another microservice fails. And that would be uh, that would be catastrophic in an organization, especially if it was a key microservice function, such as order processing or um, counts payable, payable or counts receivable. So these microservices are interesting introductions to reduce down risk for IT. At the same time, it increases the complexity of deployment and how deployment is managed. So if you're, if you're in a uh, continuous integration deployment scenario, you would make your modification to the microservice, you add additional functionality, it would go through the QA department, uh, you build your unit test, get user approval, and then you would deploy that microservice into production through CICD. And so that, uh, that seamless <coughs> uh, integration reduces the downtime. And so you get a continuous uh, process of enhancement and improvement. Now on the surface of things, that sounds great. But you know that there will always be situations where things don't roll out according to plan and uh, there are problems. Maybe there's 
a configuration problem or certificate expiration or, or different things in the configuration that can go wrong. And so when you're doing deployment, you have different environments you deploy with, you have different launch settings that you can set in the JSON, launch JSON uh, files. And then you're working in different platforms, like you, you could be working in Visual Studio Code, you could be working in Visual Studio, you could work, be working in Java. So languages and platforms have not become universal. They're moving closer to each other. There are a lot of the same functionality exists between the different platforms. And how they do it is uh, somewhat similar. But there hasn't been a universal blending of authentication. So there's a lot to, there's JWT, uh, there's identity management, identity access management. And if you look at the lion's share of cloud computing, it has to go to Amazon. So Amazon Web Services is very big. And I can control Amazon Web Services through Python, through Boto3. And that's something that I'm definitely looking at. But a big contender in this market is also web applications that I can build in Flutter that uh, communicate through Boto3 to AWS. And so I don't I can have one code base that I'm I'm working in when I'm dealing with AWS. Now, what about Azure? I have C sharp, I have API calls, and so I'd have to learn those API calls when dealing with Azure. So there isn't a universal way to have one set of code that does um, that makes the services, like whether it's AWS or Azure or Google, seamless. And that creates a lot of complexity. So I have to learn different API calls to deal with one cloud service provider and another. So I, my, my hope is that Boto3 becomes much more powerful, just like PowerShell became more powerful. And it becomes the kind of the universal glue for dealing with different uh, back-end cloud web services. Because you may decide that you like the Azure machine learning pipelines and tools that they provide, because Microsoft has been known for developer tools. Um, but at the same time, you may like some of the powerful AWS features, such as Lex and Recognizer, for dealing with object recognition and uh, having conversational text to voice, voice to text. So these are uh, considerations that we have to be thinking about. And one of the areas that I'm starting to think is that a lot of this complexity can have companies that I build and form from this complexities. But the way I would do it is uh, through a particular microservice or a Lambda, and then uh, provide platform as a service or software as a service. So create a software as a service model, and then 
provide that as a service to different companies that they can subscribe to and utilize that particular aspect of machine learning or AI. Just like Amazon is doing with their platforms. But see, access to their platforms is no trivial matter. It takes a lot of uh, skill and time to learn how to manage and create the pipelines that will produce predictable results in production. So you just can't sit down and wire things up and it work. Or you can't talk to an AI and tell them what the AI what you want to do and have it generate the code. It doesn't work that way yet. Now, will it in the future? I think so. I think AI is going to play a very important role in integration to the cloud. I think soon we will see either Google or Amazon or Microsoft introduce a natural language interface for setting up configurations and writing code that allows communication with the cloud platform services. That's just my thinking because of the level of complexity is involved. And if you're you know, programming this and it doesn't give you the correct results, then you have to go to Stack Overflow to figure out if someone else has had a similar problem. And, or you buy uh, books from experts who are, who are giving you complete reference knowledge. And that's what I did with Flutter is I bought a, the complete reference guide and, and now I'm studying it in detail. I'm studying um, block providers. I'm studying stream streams and stream controllers and understanding how futures work with streams and uh, asynchronous and synchronous. There's a lot of knowledge that you have to uh, learn, and learning takes time. So if you're you're starting off in this process and you're frustrated because you can't make two hundred thousand dollars a year writing AWS backend code, don't don't become discouraged. It takes time to learn. Just start practicing because programming is practice, and. Uh, Again, trying to solve problems. So get in, uh, try to do some code challenges and see how well you understand the APIs and how well you understand the concepts. <clears throat> and work on building you a GitHub. And then uh, set a goal for maybe three years where you want to be. Well, and I did that about two years ago. I said, well, I think I want to, uh, you know, master data science. So I got data science, data engineering, machine learning, data analytics. Um, I'm working on my Python and SQL analysis. And those are all great, uh, the great paths to take and get a good solid knowledge or get exposure to the technology. And then from there, decide if you're going to invest for the next seven years into that technology to help build companies. And that's where I am now is wanting to build companies because I could see that um, companies that already have the technology want people who have lots of experience in these domains. And so how do you get the experience from that domain? You build a company, 
with that domain and you sell it. So it makes sense to do it that way. And uh, how do you get the ideas? Well, I'm working with different individuals who are uh, working in the machine learning AI and that are creating ideas. And then I will take the ideas and build that into a company. So that's the, the, the model for um, expanding from an idea into a concrete company that can produce things of value for other companies and that they would be willing to pay for. One time I remember uh, developers asking Bill Gates why they had to pay for software. And he said, because they will build better, they will take the money and build better software that will help the developers make money. And for the most part of my career has been Microsoft. I've invested into Microsoft technology. I was in Oracle and I did fairly well for several years, maybe about six or seven years in Oracle. But I could see that the world was moving quickly to SQL Server and the SQL Server was really better than Oracle. It had incredible rich development features and now with the analytics and machine learning it's getting even better and so I don't think there's I think uh, SQL Server is in a class by itself but there are new databases that are coming in we see uh, Firebase is becoming popular with with Google and they're pushing Firebase as the database for handling lots of transactions for mobile development and I've worked in Firebase before and I've liked it it's a, a non-structured database and it's easy to uh, work with but I also would prefer working with MongoDB because it's not a tree structure it's a document structure Well, every system, oh, excuse me, every system has its pros and cons, and you have to just kind of weigh it out. And I think what's happening in the world is everyone's just using different uh, technologies based on the situation. So, a microservice, one microservice may use MongoDB, and uh, it could use uh, .NET Core, and it may use Angular. Another one might have uh, Flutter on the front end. But, you know, your front end should be loosely coupled to the your middle layer and your back and the, the back end. So, you know, you can build your store procedures and, the, and I really like the entity framework ability to integrate with the store procedures. You use the DB context dot procedures dot and then your store procedure and you pass your parameters in. Very simple, very uh, nice solution. And, you, and it's running off of a use SQL server package, .NET Core package. And I think that as we start to see more functionality come in, we'll be using uh, .NET Core .machine learning or .NET Core deep learning or .NET Core reinforcement learning. 
you know, there's going to be a huge expansion towards AI. And with the success of OpenAI Codex, I think that, uh, that at least you can do is ask general questions and have the machine generate up code snippets for you to look at and decide whether or not you think it'll be useful. And I was really pretty surprised how good uh, Codex has become at understanding what I'm asking it to do. It seems like uh, that it, it doesn't... Uh, there are times like if you give it too vague of instruction, it kind of goes gets lost and it starts uh, throwing out gibberish but other times it's really good it, it gets real close to the answer that you want and sometimes it gives you the exact answer that you you are desiring and usually it's not a lot of code you know it's like like writing 100 pages of code for you it's like writing maybe 10 or 20 lines at max, maybe three or four lines that are really important. And when you look at that syntax, then it kind of looks correct to you, and you're like, oh, well, let me try that. So then you put it in your Jupyter notes and try it, and if it works, then you're, you give it a thumbs up. If it doesn't, you give it a thumbs down. And so that feedback loop is important because it's helping condition the machine to know what answer types are acceptable and which ones are probably not. And you can almost tell the ones that are probably not acceptable where it's just building like a Pascal triangle of data. Anytime you see the Pascal triangle of data, you know that it's just giving you gibberish. Like it's saying one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five something like that where it's just throwing out sequences uh, because it's probability decoder thinks that you're wanting uh, to know a sequence of numbers or sequence of phrases and that's not what you're interested in and your choice of words will have to be very careful you almost as uh, important as what you're asking is how you're asking the NLP to create a function. And so, you know, it, um, I find that sometimes giving it the data, it can analyze the data, and then asking it to generate a goal is the, creates the best results. And so I really feel like AI is a aid, not a uh, detriment for development. That if you're not using AI, then in the future, that will be something that will produce, you'll produce slower results because you could understand quicker from the collective whole how to solve a problem. <laughs> the other thing that I, I find that's really important is Learning takes time. Um, so it took me two days to go through Microsoft Razor 
and get the uh, view on how that technology works and, and try to decide if that's a, a technology to invest in. And I started thinking about it. There isn't much of a market for Flutter yet because uh, not that it isn't an amazing technology and it does, you know, it's advanced because it's using widgets instead of HTML and CSS, which creates a, an abstract layer between you and the browser. But the, the truth is, is Angular hasn't caught up yet. So the Angular world has not abandoned uh, HTML and CSS. They're still holding on to that W3C. And that is creating a lot of complexity. And I think that there must be some reason that they have not moved to widgets um, or adopted the Dart approach for development. There should be an immediate merge between Angular and, and Dart because Dart is far superior in terms of the development methodology and approach uh, for front-end development. But companies have to adopt it, and so that's where Angular continues to maintain its strong position, is that developers have not moved away from HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, uh, Knockout, etc., and shifted towards asynchronous programming with streams and provider blocks and block logic code and um, futures and future builders and stream builders and these more object-oriented methods for interacting with the front end. And how long will it take for them to adopt that technology? It could take decades. And you look at the, the, the kind of the evolvement of Angular, and it's still doing things pretty much the way we've been doing things for the last 20 years. But I, I tell you that the Dart Flutter technology is the future because of the the switch in creating that abstract layer between the front end and uh, the, your programming code, and and Dart code is a lot like C sharp. There's no, there, you know, it's uh, it's it's more like JavaScript than C sharp, but it you can do inheritance, you can do interfaces, you can do classes, you can do generics, and there and you know so. Ultimately, if we, if we looked at and compared the .NET Core C-sharp capabilities to the Dart capabilities, C-sharp is going to have a larger library set, but Dart is growing pretty quick with all the different libraries that are now becoming available to use and extend the, the capabilities of the Dart interface. And it runs fast, it runs fast on the machine, and it's not going, it's not running on JavaScript, it's running native code, and so it's running fast to the machine. And you can write, you can create uh, FFI bridges, Dart FFI, and it will create a bridge and you can run your C, C++ code that's on the device. 
So for that reason, Dart is very powerful in that it uh, will allow intercommunication with other programming languages. So you can have you you can you don't have to port your code to Dart. You can you can uh, run that your code if it's a C C++ code compiled. You can run that code on your device and then set up external function references to those API calls and then make those calls to that external code running native on your device. So a classic example of that is OpenCV, which is really quite popular for dealing with camera and video and object recognition. So you can have your OpenCV gathering your video feed stream that up to the cloud to your AWS do the option recognition send get received back the metadata and the callback process the metadata and put a bounded box around the object and you could set the labels because it'll return text labels also in the, in the data stream and it will give you your bounded box the text labels that it, that are identifying the object and it can read text that is in the image itself as metadata. How cool is that? So you now can have a AWS app that you, you have on your phone, and while you're driving around, it's reading billboard signs, it's scanning. Maybe you, you put it in the dashboard of your car, and while you're moving around, it's reading everything around you speed limits it's reading dashboards it's reading um, objects and it's processing all that information really fast we can't assume that the handheld device is going to be dumb in the future the computational power is going to significantly increase and so you know the device computational power is going to increase, but also its access to the cloud is going to increase. And so as there are more interactions with the cloud and richer features, people are going to expect more functionality from these devices. And they will provide more. And so there's going to be more intense interaction with the device, just like there was very intense interactions between people and GPT-3. But it's expensive. GPT-3 is for the rich. It's not for the poor. Those interactions cost a lot of money in tokens. And when it parses, it, you know, it doesn't have a limit, per se, on how fast it's consuming those tokens. So your conversation could cost you $30. And you might be asking it hard questions. And GPT-3, with its vastness of training, will attempt to answer that. So it'll pull on those resources to answer those questions. And there are different models that it was trained on. Um, so depending on what your goal is, would be dependent on the model that you use. Eventually they'll have uh, a switching system based on the content of what you're asking and it may decide that one model 
is better than another and it might switch <coughs> models automatically for you. So, you know, there's a lot of thinking and philosophizing that has to go on as we approach the next few years. Because we're going to see AI and machine learning and robotics become playing a much bigger role as we see problems in uh, labor shortages and manual labor and even skilled labor. But the automation will begin to play a bigger role faster. Companies that have been uh, slow to implement the technologies will realize that it, it's performing pretty good and they can fill some of these gaps. Will the gaps be filled perfectly? I don't think so. But it may be good enough. You know, you look at uh, automated semi-driving. They're already doing it. It's not, you know, where, where is, show me where this technology is, is being used. They are using it. And it's starting to uh, make an impact. Well, how much of an impact could it make? If, let's say there's 50,000 drivers and you've got 10 automated driving semis. You know, that's a huge difference in terms of percentage. Even to get to the 1%. But at some point, if you can get to the 10% of accepted uh, critical mass, then you could get acceleration where more companies are moving quicker to that technology. It's just like with cloud. In one year, uh, the adoption of cloud jumped from 16 billion, added additional $50 billion to over, uh, six, I think, 60-something plus billion dollars. Or $67 billion in one year. So there were early adopters, and then there were adopters, and then there is the main group that's starting to now move towards cloud. Well, then the question is, is what about web versus mobile? web is dead, mobile's in. So if you're developing for for web, uh, you're, you're developing in an older technology. So you probably need to be thinking about developing for mobile. The, the mobile demand's going to be higher because people are carrying their, their devices, they're going to meetings, they're looking at screens, they're looking at desktops, applications that are pulling up data. They're talking about the data. Um, they're visualizing the data. But they're also very mobile. They can be remote. They can be, you know, there could be things that are time sensitive, real time, that they need immediate access to. And they have to do that through their mobile device. So it has to handle authentication, um, presentation, and it has to be capable of multiple tasks at one time. So I think mobile is it. Mobile is the new future. 
and with the dark flutter architecture approach you are getting the capability of multitasking semaphoring mutex things like that that are uh, state-based and it and it is truly an application it isn't this stateless environment even though you are in a stateless environment uh, but it, it it does manage state now does where does it manage the state it manages the state on the client versus Microsoft that manages state on the server with Razor. Razor is managed on the on the server. But my feeling is is that hopefully Microsoft will listen, send out a message to them that um, move to widget technology quickly. Introduce a new technology based on widgets and move away from HTML. HTML was a good idea at one time, but the vast complexity and difficulty in reading HTML and the numerous tags that can be built by custom components are making HTML very difficult, very difficult to read indeed. And there's nothing more difficult than when you're in a development environment and you open up a page and there's numerous pages that that page depends on with partial views and sub views and going to find all those components and thinking about how those components are being generated and how your final presentation wouldn't it be much easier to have widgets and tree structures of widgets and co widget components that are put inside tree structures and directories and you just pull the component that you want and it's easy to go trace that component back uh, from its usage point to a source code well I think so and I think it handles the manages complexity much better I mean it does take a little time when you come back into dark code and you're looking at it and you're thinking about where things are organized but you can put things in <coughs> good good areas like you could have your block logic code in one area, you can have your models in another, you can have your pages in one, you can have your widgets in another subdirectory, and you may even want to have reusable shared components or shared widgets in another uh, directory. You can have your services in a directory, uh, provider services, you know, that could be your database, your email services, your SMS services um, and maybe even your AI pipeline services and possibly even your graphic services and your uh, chart graphing services so you could have these different service providers and you could have these different widgets too you could have reporting widgets you could have uh, you could have 
chart widgets, you got visualization widgets, you could have PDF widgets. I mean, there's just a lot of different variations of components types that you could use. This is why I say that I could see with um, OpenAI and its ability to write code that it could not only help write the code, but it might be able to actually help you organize your code so that it is easier to read and understand. And that, so that it becomes this assistant, assistant to help you become more productive. And when, when programmers, <coughs> let's say, can show a 5% increase in productivity by using AI, then more programmers will start to use it and there will be more collaboration sharing and that will facilitate better, use, better tools, integration of tools, better documentation, better understanding of how things work and the philosophy behind how they work. So these are <clears throat> things that I think are, are, are going to be important in the development world. And I've, obviously this conversation has switched now from the machine learning more into the development because I'm looking at how do I create these silos of functionality, you know, whether it starts at the front end, moves to the middle layer through the web APIs, moves to the back end through your uh, different services that are either running locally or on the cloud. How do I leverage that into different silos so that I can isolate that functionality and keep it loosely coupled and at the same time uh, increase the, the extensibility or range in which I'm able to create code for the next five years, let's say it's five years, to build up this infrastructure. And then every part of the company is affected by code because you're now doing things from a domain analysis point of view. And so as one area has more functional requirements, you divert more resources there and you build, you build up uh, more functions and microcode in that domain. Now, how do you know what functionalities exist so you're not duplicating? I mean, it's very possible that, you know, you forget if you had a thousand microservices running, it's very easy to forget you had microservice 59. And so you rebuild it again. And <clears throat> maybe the <coughs> it becomes like the internet that people are <coughs> using or developers are using popular microservices <coughs> and the less popular ones are are dropped off. So again, you know, it becomes a search problem. The microservices could become a search problem. And, uh, and so you'd need to have some sort of metadata that's helping you find that particular microservice and understand what, how to consume it and what it can produce.
I remember one time in a company I had written all these reports and then an, another developer decided that he didn't like the report instead of using my report he wrote his own and I was like wow that's exactly like my report but he wrote it himself and utilized it and I thought that was very egotistical because he could have used my report and you know saved uh, time but instead now we had two reports that did the same thing and so now people were using that report instead of my report and it was there was an ego thing that was going on so I kind of wonder if that's the way microservices will be is that we build them they're out there and somehow uh, developers or business intelligence developers will find those microservices and consume them they'll say oh this is really useful this is exactly what I want and they start using it and so usability and popularity again become the pathway into usage of the microservice um, or maybe you have a control a tighter control management and then as requests come in they carefully think through the request and they search through the different microservices until they find the domain uh, and then they find the, the microservice in that domain and then they they line up the microservice functionality to the requirement and if it matches then they consume it if it doesn't match then they uh, uh, <clears throat> they they go and seek uh, uh, enhancement on it. Okay, well that's my thoughts for the week.